Crow, and you've reached the Curious Crow Podcast. I am super excited today to dive into a topic that I know is near and dear to the hearts of everyone, and that is Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. Yeah, I know. You love Coke, you hate Coke. You love Pepsi, you hate Pepsi. There are some cray-cray feelings out there that go one way or the other over Pepsi or Coke. But regardless of which side you stand on, I mean, you gotta just got to love the history uh, behind these two iconic brands. And unfortunately, not a lot of people know the history, and it's, uh, it can get a little dicey there. So your old buddy Barrett Crow, of course, is going to bring you the facts, the truth, and the straight scoop on Coke versus Pepsi. You can do it! All right, diving right in. You have to realize that soft drinks, which I will just use kind of as a general term with today's uh, nomenclature, were completely different uh, back in the days when Coke and Pepsi were first created. They were sold at pharmacies at what is called a soda fountain. Now, I know a lot of you young punks out there have, have no idea what a soda fountain means, and even some of you old punks might not even know. But let me break it down for you. During the mid to late 1800s, people thought that carbonated water, soda water, had a lot of health benefits. So many pharmacies and drug stores would have a soda fountain where carbonated water would be mixed with other different ingredients and taken as a either refreshing drink or as a medicine. So a lot of these drinks started to appear in the late 1800s at soda fountains that were purported to cure various ailments. Some people will say this is the <laughs> the child of the snake oil salesman from the Old West, and it may very well be, but the fact remains that soda fountains were very popular and even continued into the you know 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s when you watch movies like Grease and whatnot. You know, you hit, hit up the malt shop and the old soda fountain to go have a good time. So we're going to begin our journey with Coca-Cola since it came first and originated at a soda fountain. It Was it the first drink that came out like this? No, absolutely not. In fact, one of the earliest drinks that we would refer to as a soft drink, or more specifically a cola, would be Moxie, which was out in 1876. Now, Moxie was originally called Moxie Nerve Food. <laughs> Gotta love that name, right? And it was advertised as a treatment for paralysis, softening of the brain, nervousness, and insomnia. Now, I'm looking at this right now going, all right, how is a caffeinated beverage uh, and a highly caffeinated beverage at that going to treat insomnia? And I'm not really sure what softening of the brain is. I mean, it sounds bad. Hopefully I don't have it. But I mean, I definitely don't want it. So I guess I need to get me some Moxie. And Moxie was very popular in the soda fountains. And it contained an item which we know today to be called gentian root. And that gave it this very distinct flavor, almost a bitter flavor, but definitely a bite. And so as a little side note, Moxie had such a distinct flavor that people either loved it or hated it. And that's where the term, you've got Moxie, kid, came about in the English language. You know what you got, Jay? You got Moxie. So you watch a lot of those movies, especially in the 20s or 30s the gangster-type movies and all of that that followed. And like, why, kid, I like your style. You've got moxie. That meant that you've got, you know, guts, spunk, charisma, whatever you want to say. And uh, that actually came from the soda, moxie. That's where we got that word. So moxie had been rolling around, created since 1876. We're going to flash forward to May 8th, 1886. 
Atlanta pharmacist John Pemberton. He walked into Jacob's Pharmacy there in Atlanta, and he had with him a whiskey bottle full of goo. <laughs> syrup for lack of a better word and the guy there at the old owner of Jacob's Pharmacy they added soda water to it and he gave it a taste and he's like Jacob's like oh you know what some good stuff there chief yeah I'll sell that we could sell that for five cents a glass uh, what exactly does it do well according to Dr. Pemberton it was a cure for morphine addiction indigestion nerve disorders headaches and my favorite of all impotence and again, you look at what's in Coke and you're going, going to cure indigestion, uh, impotence, morphine addiction. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know, uh, but there you are. So allegedly, allegedly, Pemberton was a morphine addict himself. And I'm only saying allegedly, allegedly, because I don't want to get sued. Uh, but pretty much they all historically agree that Pemberton himself was a morphine addict. And that's one of the reasons that he invented Coca-Cola was to try to get himself off of morphine. Lovely. And uh, <laughs> how did it get the name Coca-Cola? Well, obviously from the coca leaf, which contained cocaine, as did Coca-Cola, and caffeine, which was extracted from the cola nut, hence Coca-Cola. And you will see a whole bunch of beverages spring out of this, of this type, that all have cola at the, uh, in their name because it came from the cola nut. Interesting side note, it was Dr. Pemberton's bookkeeper, Frank Robinson, and no, he did not play uh, for any Major League Baseball team, but he came up with the name Coca-Cola because he thought the two C's looked good in advertising. Because technically, cola would have a K. But uh, he thought the two C's looked cool, so Coca-Cola was born, and he came up with that first script that's still used today. So Pemberson set it up with uh, Jacob's Pharmacy, and they, Jacob's Pharmacy is going to sell the Coca-Cola for five cents a glass, and Pemberton will just sell them the syrup, because that's how soda fountains work. Pemberton sold them the syrup, they added the soda water there at the fountain, and then the soda fountain folks kept the profit from the five cents a glass that they were selling. Now, as you imagine, it took off like wildfire instantly, right? Not so much. Uh, in fact, in the first year, they averaged selling about nine drinks a day, which, I mean, I guess that's not too bad. I mean, if you think they're selling moxie and other stuff too, but the first year they averaged about nine drinks a day. Now, what came along that really benefited Coca-Cola was that in 1886, Georgia and most of Georgia passed prohibition against alcohol. So now all the people that were used to boozing had to look for something else to drink. So Coca-Cola, being savvy, they started to market themselves as the temperance drink. So all you worthless degenerates out there from up country, now you can go ahead and drink Coca-Cola instead and be a good upstanding citizen and still get, you know, your jollies. Coke, you know, it started gaining popularity, but it was growing very slowly uh, due to a huge competition that has emerged now in the cola market. I mean, it was like the Wild West of these soft drinks, which were called patent medicine, as I said, because they're, they're using it as medicinal cures. And uh, Coke was growing slowly because of all the competition, combined with the fact that Pemberton was not really a great businessman at all. And he, just, just for some hilarity's sake for you, here's some names of the other competing drinks that were out there during the time of Coca-Cola. And see if any of these names sound familiar or ripoffs, right? We have My Coca. Cola Tona, Celery Cola, Afri Cola, 
Coco Colo, Coca Nola, Ryola, Wiseola, Mint Cola, Taka Cola, Coke Ola, Toka Cola, Gay Ola, Glee Ola, Lawn Cola, Orin Cola, Lime Colo, Shero Cola, Fletcher's Cola, just <laughs> just just to be different, Trico, Brainall, and my favorite, Dope. Yo, hook me up with some dope. Exactly. I mean, there you are. So Pemberton's not that great of a businessman. Plus, he's competing against all of this nonsense that's going on. And so, you know, he's selling his syrup, making a little money here and there. But he didn't really see a huge future uh, for Coca-Cola because of the competition. So he starts selling off chunks of his business to various people, partially because he didn't see much of a future in those soft drinks and partially because he needed money to fund his morphine addiction, allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So about a year after Coke being around, a guy by the name of Asa Candler, he bought a big chunk of Coke from Pemberton and he wanted the sales to take off. So we're looking now, you know, about 1887. He really wanted the sales to take off and Candler, unlike Pemberton, was a really good businessman. So Candler makes a coupon that enables whomever gets the coupon to have a free sample of Coca-Cola. You can try Coca-Cola, come to the soda fountain, take this coupon and bam, a free Coca-Cola for you. This started working and working very well. As a little side note for you, that's actually the very first documented coupon that existed in the United States was for a free glass of Coca-Cola. So sales starting to pick up a little more, you know, of course there's there's competitors and all. And then in 1888, which is just a little over two years after Coca-Cola was invented, Dr. Pemberton dies. So the guy who invented it dies, you know, less than two years, well, a little over two years after inventing it. This point has sold off most of the company. Now, Candler has the biggest portion of Coke ownership, but there's also several other partners out there, including Pemberton's son, Charlie. The most hilarious part of the whole thing was that Charlie was allowed to keep the name Coca-Cola, but the agreement with some of these partners, it allowed them to use the formula, but they couldn't use the name. So they could use the exact formula as part of their business deal, but not the name. And Charlie, of course, was insisting that he owned the name 100%. So as Charlie and, and Asa Candler fought it out, Candler, he still kept selling Coca-Cola syrup, but he had to sell it under a different name. So he sold it under the name of Coke, which was K-O-K-E, and the even better name, Yum Yum. <laughs> Not kidding. Yum, yum. So uh, not having use of the Coca-Cola name exclusively made Candler very furious. So he spent all of his time trying to actively buy out the other partners. But uh, fortunately for, for Candler, our boy Charlie, Pemberton's son, allegedly, allegedly had an opium addiction himself. And so he kind of needed money for the opium. I say allegedly, even though Charlie died four years later from what the newspaper said was an opium addiction and was actually found with a giant log of opium in his hand when he was dead. So signs kind of point in that direction. Charlie got his fix and Candler got the rest of Coca-Cola. And by 1891, he had acquired basically all of Coca-Cola for the total cost of $2,300. 
And while you go, are you kidding me? Remember, this is like early 1900s, late 1800s here. So when you adjust for inflation, it's about $71,000, $72,000. So still, buying all of Coca-Cola for $72,000 while it's being profitable is a hell of a deal. Now, Aza Candler, he was the exact opposite of Pemberton. He was a great businessman. And Coca-Cola was reflecting that. Uh, that coupon idea he had was just taking off. And by 1890, he had sold 9,000 gallons of syrup. So then Asa just started pumping money into advertising. The sales were churning up and up. And in fact, by 1895, he had opened syrup plants in Chicago, Dallas, L.A., and even in Illinois. So he was able to state by 1895 that Coca-Cola was being consumed in every state and territory in the United States. But, and there's always a but. Candler had one pretty substantial shortfall. He was content with just selling the syrup concentrate. He didn't really see much future in bottling the, the finished product and selling it that way because he thought the soda fountains were going to be around forever and that's where the money was. And so then in July of 1899, two guys named Benjamin Thomas and Joseph Whitehead, they came to Candler and said, we want to start bottling this and selling it like for people to take to go, not just sitting at the counter and drinking it. Candler thought, well, this is a great way for me to sell way more syrup. So he sold them the exclusive bottling rights for Coca-Cola for $1. Yes, for $1. This was in July. Candler thought, what do I got to lose? These guys probably won't amount to squat. Bottling's going to suck. Regardless, I'm going to sell a bunch more syrup. In September 1899, they had already opened a bottling plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So let's see, they got the rights in July. In September, they already got a bottling plant rolling. Less than a year later, they've already got a second plant in Atlanta. Candler had drastically underestimated the, the demand for bottles of Coca-Cola by allowing these guys to take those bottling rights like that. Here's where it got even worse for Candler and Coca-Cola in general. The way that contract was written was very loose, very open-ended. And Thomas and Whitehead, they started thinking and saying, well, you know what? We can't do all this bottling ourselves and we want Coca-Cola to expand. So they started selling franchises under them as bottlers to different territories. So by 1950, they had 1,100 franchises. So what... Thomas and Whitehead did is they just made themselves middlemen. They bought the syrup from Candler and then sold it to all of these other people who were franchisees under them who did the actual bottling. So they had all the bottling rights and within a few years they weren't even bottling anything anymore and were just raking in the cash being the middleman for no reason. Now, Coca-Cola eventually realized how much of a horrible mistake this was. And starting in 1920, they started trying to buy back all the, the franchise bottling rights. And just as a fun fact, it took them until about 1986, all the way to 1986 to get the large majority of those back. Well, Candler knew he'd made a mistake, but he defended it by saying that in 1890, he had sold 9,000 gallons of syrup. And now in 1900, because of the bottling deal, he's already sold 371,000 gallons. But, you know, this bottling agreement, as, as bad as it was for Candler losing the money on the bottling, it had one major side effect which not only hurt Coca-Cola tremendously, but it also helped them grow at the same time. And this one term of the contract nearly put Coke under. And that term was something we'll get to in a little bit. So for now, we're going to leave this time machine parked at Coke in the year 1900. And we're going to hop on over to a drink 
with much less drama, Pepsi. Pepsi-Cola was created in 1893 by Caleb Bradham, who was a pharmacist in New Bern, North Carolina. So Caleb had seen the Wild West nature of all these patent medicine sodas out there, and he thought to himself, hey, why not? I'll make my own. Interestingly enough, the original name of Pepsi-Cola was the super catchy Brad's Drink. Serious. Honestly. You waddled up to the soda fountain and ordered Brad's Drink. Now, why it's called that and who the hell is Brad, the world may never know, but I can only guess the Brad came from his last name, Bradham, because that's the only thing worse that I can think of than being called Bradham's Drink. So Brad's Drink was different than Coke uh, because it contained no cocaine, no caffeine even, and it kind of had a citrus taste that came from lemon oil. So Brad was go ahead and, and... firing off the Brad's drinks there for a few years. And uh, then in 1898, decided that he needed a name change. So he changed the name to Pepsi-Cola. And that's because he started to advertise the drink to relieve dyspepsia, which is the recurring upset stomach disorder, which has no obvious cause. So dyspepsia is basically, my stomach gets upset and irritated all the time, but we can't figure out why and what's causing it. A lot of people assume that Pepsi stood for pepsin, which is a digestive enzyme, but the drink never contained pepsin. But I'm sure our buddy Brad, as we call him from now on, was okay with that assumption. Pepsi had a big advantage over Coke because they had seen how successful bottling had become for Coke. So Bradham knew better than to sign away his bottling rights to like any unnecessary middlemen like our buddy Asa had done. In 1903... He moved his production operation out of his drugstore. Yes, he was still producing the syrup in the drugstore. And he moved it to a rented warehouse. And then right before, Bradham had sold about about 8,000 gallons of syrup right before he moved to the warehouse. But then the next year, as he was operating from the warehouse and he started to bottle himself, he had sold nearly 20,000 gallons of syrup, which obviously is a, a a, a big difference, right? Bradham continued to try to outsource and franchise the bottling in a better way than Coke had done. And by 1905, he had two franchises out there. But by 1910, had 300 franchises, which are bottlers, in 24 states. So, uh, Caleb was doing pretty good. Doing pretty good with this. And so, with what he believed to be the bottling of Pepsi firmly in hand, our boy Caleb, a.k.a. Brad, Bradham, He fired the first salvo in the soon-to-be century-long celebrity cola war. Yes, my friends, Pepsi, in 1909, hired Barney Oldfield, who was a pioneer in this new thing they had out there called automobile racing. They hired Barney Oldfield as one of their official spokesmen, and he called the drink of Pepsi a bully drink, refreshing, invigorating and a fine bracer before a race what an endorsement so pepsi said you know what we're gonna go with the slogan delicious and healthful and they stuck with healthful and delicious for about 20 years or so meanwhile back in coke land for whatever reason coke had decided to remove the cocaine from their formula 
this happened in about 1903. I know you're shocked. I know you're shocked. And I know you're saddened, but I'm just, just telling you the history here. And it's not known exactly why, but some have speculated that Coke had inside info about the upcoming Pure Food Act, which ended up getting passed in 1906. And this act was very anti-cocaine and was seriously questioning caffeine, too. And what was happening is bottling plants started to become victims of sting operations by the government where the government would come into these bottling plants and take samples of of the product before they were distributed and test them. Before there had been virtually no testing at all and if there was any then the person would go and provide the sample to be tested. But now the bottling plants were getting just swarmed, samples taken and off to test it and we'll go from there. Now, this very unfortunately caused some of our whack job colas from earlier to meet their demise from this. So, R.I.P. to Ryola, Wiseola, Coca Nolo, and yes, even Celery Cola. See, Celery Cola was reported to contain massive amounts of both cocaine and caffeine, so it was probably awesome. But, you know, that's kind of one of the ways that it went down, and and I will tell you, no one can say that Coke, you know, took out the cocaine to prevent prosecution, and no one can say that Coke had inside information on this upcoming act or anything. No one can say that. But at the exact same time... I do find it incredibly convenient that coincidentally, Coca-Cola sent their entire legal team by overnight train to federal court in Birmingham in 1910 to help defend Celery Cola in their case. Yeah. Coincidence? Hmm. Now, Celery Cola eventually lost... But the Coke lawyers had learned enough to successfully defend themselves when the government came for them in Chattanooga less than a year later. So Coke didn't really do anything wrong. They didn't have this info, whatever. But Coke didn't have cocaine in it anymore. Still had the caffeine and the cola nut and all of that. But for whatever reason, the government came for them the next year. But Coca-Cola was able to defend itself without issue, partially because of all the inside information it had got from being co-litigators in the Celery Cola trial. So love it or hate it, right or wrong, that was a pretty smart strategy to go with. And while we're on the subject, I must mention that Coca-Cola to this day continues to state that they have never had cocaine in their formula, ever, ever, forever, ever, Never in any of the iterations of Coca-Cola have they had cocaine in there. But pretty much every expert on the medicinal documents of that time and pretty much every expert on Coca-Cola itself will tell you, yeah, they did. And pretty much any legal expert will tell you they have to say they never did and lie about it because if they don't, they're going to open themselves up to huge lawsuits. So you take it for what it's worth. I personally believe that it did have cocaine, and I think you'd be a fool not to, but I'm telling you that Coca-Cola's official position is it never did and never will. All right, so we've got Coke and Pepsi now. They're both growing like wildfire, and then the country is starting to divide over what's their favorite. I mean, it's pretty much neck and neck between the two. Asa Candler's group, they decide they're going to sell Coca-Cola in 1919, and they sell it for $25 million which is about $407 million 
in today's money. Candler's Group sells Coca-Cola for about $25 million, and Bradham's Group over at Pepsi, just a few years later, file for bankruptcy. What? Yep. So Pepsi, at that point, looked completely doomed, while Coke looked unstoppable, having just sold for $25 million in 1919 dollars. But there was something looming out there that Coke had been quietly trying to ignore, but no longer could. Remember that hastily thrown together bottling contract from 20 years before? Well, that was coming back to bite them in the ass. Well, I thank you very much for listening to part one of Coke versus Pepsi, a.k.a. the Cola Wars, a.k.a. I don't know, whatever the hell you want to call it. But there's way, way more interesting things to come, so be sure to listen to the next episode of Part 2. We haven't even got into the Pepsi Challenge, Michael Jackson's hair on fire, uh, new Coke. I mean, holy smokes. So be sure you listen to Part 2. And hey, it takes me a long time to make these podcasts, to do the research, to get you accurate information, to record it, to edit my millions of screw-ups. So do me a favor, like comment, share, and subscribe. Just subscribe to the podcast on your your favorite podcast provider, and that way you'll automatically know when we get a new episode. The new episodes come out every Wednesday, but save yourself some time and just get the ding when it's there. So love you all. Take care. We've got Barrett Crow and the Curious Crow podcast, and we'll be seeing you soon. Here and it was a sick ostrich. Still, it's a three-man job.